Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today, we have Ellen Armour on the show. Ellen is a native of California's San Joaquin Valley, where she lived until attending UCLA. She earned her Bachelor of Arts in Music Composition from the School of Arts and Architecture and went on to work in project management for the UCLA David Geffen School of Medicine, as well as Google, Chevron, an international consulting firm, Turner & Townsend, and Tedder Architects and Engineers before landing at the Fresno Philharmonic, where she currently serves as the Director of Marketing and Development, Developing Relationships, and Marketing Best Practices for an Outstanding Nonprofit Arts Organization. Ellen also serves on the board of directors for the Association of California Symphony Orchestras and is the immediate past board president and marketing chair for the Fresno Arts Council. Ellen is a classically trained pianist, a vocalist, and composer of 33 years and loves sharing the beauty and joy of music with others. You can find some of her music on Spotify, Apple Music, and all streaming platforms. Please enjoy our conversation, and Baker will take us there. Fresno's best. Ellen, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Let's see. I made a list because I have a few different places. Cracked peppers will be top of the list, both for food, drinks, atmosphere, but also that's where my now husband asked me to marry him. So I've got some, you know, emotional ties forever and ever. I personally really like Anesso. It's close to my house, which is nice, but their food is also just really excellent. They, you know, obviously share ownership with the folks at Annex. And so just across the board, really excellent food, drink service, all of that. And I also like that when you walk in there, you kind of feel like you're stepping out of Fresno just a little bit in terms of like the architecture and all of that, which, you know, maybe some people don't notice, but I think is pretty cool. I love the videos for just classic Italian, Kunisama for sushi. And if you have to do takeout, particularly on a day when you're feeling sad, get Noodle Express. You will not regret it. It is so good. Drunken noodles every day. Mm. Okay. I've been to all of them except Noodle Express. Where is Noodle Express? So it's somewhere across town. I actually couldn't tell you where it physically is. Mm. That is my go-to for DoorDash. We have like one day a week in our house, takeout Tuesday. If we decide we want takeout, that's the day. And we did it this week and it was definitely Noodle Express. Mm. So what, is it just general noodles or is it, is it a Thai place? Is there so a place? It's, right. It's a Thai place. Mm-hmm. Okay. Gotcha. And really gotcha. just delicious curry. If you like curry, the perfect sticky rice, if you're a sticky rice fan like me and the yes. drunken noodles are just primo. Mm. Lots of great options. And I love a lot of those options as well. We're going to jump into now some music questions. I've got a bunch of them. I'm just going to go through them kind of rapid fire. First one, why do you like classical music? So classical music and I have a long personal history. I started playing piano when I was very young. And my parents, who are both from a Caribbean island named Trinidad, they put me in classical music, my classical piano lessons when I was five years old. I'm the oldest of four daughters. We all started classical piano lessons at five years old. Myself and my youngest sister, who is about 10 years my junior, the two of us were the only ones who really continued those lessons all the way through high school. And then I was the only one of the four who decided to study music composition as my major in college. So I earned my degree in music composition from UCLA. And I think, I think 
it would be too simple to say that I just like classical music because I studied it for so long. I think you can study things for a long time and then one day wake up and decide you hate that. You know, it's just grates on you or you've learned enough, et cetera. I think for me, I was also immersed in it in my household. My dad used to listen to a lot of different things, you know, Michael Jackson, Phil Collins, Genesis, and a crap ton of opera, which I can't tell you now that I like opera. I have mixed feelings about opera most days, but it was that immersion in classical music, just being in the household, it was normalized. So it never really felt like classical music in the sense of being old and having this deep history. It just felt like music that was playing in our house. But I, I do appreciate classical music for its varied uses. I mean, a lot of kind of people who are not in the classical realm will recognize a lot of pieces because they're used in like, you know, the Looney Tunes cartoons or in big films that, you know, the piece just fits really well. So I love classical music for that reason, but it's also transforming into other things. So, you know, I love it for some more modern reasons as well. We're going to get more into this. But I, I do wonder if classical music is a little bit like reading with your kids when they're young. Like it's mm. something that you need to start early with them and it's harder to get into later in life. Do you feel like that's true or do you, do you see people that don't like classical music or didn't grow up with it finding it later in life? That's a really excellent question. I think it's probably more of the former. So, you know, it's the structure of classical music is very different from that of like popular music, right? It's not, it doesn't have like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, sort of a structure that is very easily digestible. You kind of have to learn how to hear classical, classical music in some ways, just because the structure is so different. And there are so many different types of classical music, right? So I think a lot of folks just sort of dump a lot of things into classical music, but you have waltzes, you have concertos, you have symphonies, and all of those have their own unique structures as well. So yeah, to your point, I think that if someone starts fairly young and can learn to hear that structure and appreciate it as a language, the same way that we do reading, writing, even listening to maybe pop music, that's a really early and frequently learned skill for young people. I think if you start earlier, you can. There are people though that get into classical music later in life and they do it for various reasons. It might be to, you know, take a pretty girl to on a date, you know, and they take them to something that they want to impress them and they find out they actually really like it. It could be that they are accompanying a grandparent. Sometimes it's people bringing you along. So there are lots of interesting ways that people come to classical music later in life as well. What percentage of people do you think who are sitting listening to an opera wish it was going to go on for another hour? <laughs> a small percentage. Probably the people in the in the audience who perhaps envision themselves being on stage, they want it to go on another hour. And I, I shouldn't denigrate opera because I do think that it is an extremely artistic representation of the musical realm, right? It's the human voice at max capacity. And it's a skill. It's something that very few people get really good at. But I think maybe for that reason, it's a little bit hard for most people to accept opera because unless you're hearing it from a true professional who's been trained and also has a deep passion for it, what you're hearing may not be the best representation of opera and therefore you want it to end sooner than later in some mm -hmm. cases. Yeah, I mean, it's hard and I love opera and it's even hard for me. Like re this past year, I subscribed to the met opera on demand amazing and, yeah and it's wonderful because you have this huge library but i didn't i 
you know, it's rare that I have like four hours to sit down and watch Wagner. And so like, I find myself watching it in batches and then it, it just feels like it loses its luster when I watch it segmented like that. But then also when it's just on my TV versus being in a room with the acoustics and with, you know, kind of the feeling the timbre of someone's voice in the space, it just, it's just, it's just not the same. And I, so, you know, I kind of had this list of operas that I wanted to watch on there and I've gotten through maybe half the list just for those various reasons that it's just not, it's something, it's a, it's an experiential thing, I think, as much mm-hmm. as it is, as like a appreciation of art. And it's also just hard too. like opera is hard. You know, yes. there's some art forms that are hard in the sense that you have to be engaged in a way that you don't with other more passive art forms. So I think, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot there. Here's, here's my next question. Do you think it's a problem that so few people under the age of 40 like classical music? As a matter of survival and existentialism, yes. I think anytime you find a subject, a you know, an art form, any sort of movement that you want to grow legs in society has to have a wide enough appeal to those who are coming up in the world. Because at some point, what you'll find is, you know, if you have an appeal that's not necessarily just very specific, but specific to a generation that, you know has lived most of their life already, right? You run the risk of having a dearth of folks who really engage with your art. And there's not an easy solution to that really because you can't force people to like things. You know, people like what they like. You know, what I will say though, is that I think we are in this interesting societal moment where there's just so much to consume and so much to experience. And it's not just social media. It's just the fact that we're, I think, moving faster technologically than the human race was perhaps designed to absorb. And so there is this interesting phenomenon of just not being able to see everything that exists. Yeah. For for inf- infovores, which is like an information mm-hmm. animal that eats information, which is how I mm-hmm. categorize myself. It's very hard because mm-hmm. I feel like in a state of paralysis because there's so many things that I want to experience and do. And right. I, I have, you know, mortality has limited my options. Um, next one. Um, there, We're going to talk about songwriting here for a second because I'd be curious your perspective. There's a growing number of copyright lawsuits. So just this year, Ed Sheeran won a copyright lawsuit over one of his songs. Post Malone settled out of court over a copyright issue with one of his songs from either from the album circles or the song circles. I'm not sure which. Do you think there's kind of a event horizon where we reach a limit in which plagiarism is kind of unavoidable? Does music have kind of this mm-hmm. in in ground, in zone where it's just, we've done everything? So I thought about this a lot because I write songs for the piano and voice and some other stuff. And occasionally I'll come up with a little riff where I'm like, that's fucking fire. This is amazing. And then I think about it overnight and like, oh, that's actually, you know, borrowed from this song or two songs mashed together or whatever. And on some level, the human brain, you know, can create, but also does a really awesome job job of regurgitating and making you think it's amazing. So I do think that at some point, there is a limit to how much newness can be considered new, given how many influences there are. I think there's also this interesting phenomenon that's going to happen too with AI, 
And I'm not the right person to really dive into this in great detail. My brother-in-law is an intellectual property attorney back East, and he can talk for days about this. But I think there's this interesting kind of state we're in where there are also artificial intelligence. I don't know how to refer to them. They're not people, but entities perhaps that are also now creating. And there's a question of whether or not they have rights, right? So you, you enter this space where it's not even just trying to figure out whether there's something new that's been created by humans like you and me, but also this new batch of creations that's by non-human entities. And how does that relate to what the humans have created? I mean, it's, it's really bizarre sci-fi futuristic stuff, but it's happening right now. And it hits copyright laws and, and kind of crosses over into that realm quite a bit. Hmm. Are musical genres useful? Do you think? They can be. They can also be a hindrance. You know, I think it's useful if you know that you like a specific genre and that's really what you're interested in listening to, you know, it can help you sort of find precisely what you're looking for. But I think, you know, the challenge with genres is that it does tend to pigeonhole artists who perhaps cross multiple genres or have created a new one that is just not well-defined. And then, you know, when people use genres in the in the way that they do for categorization of music digitally, in the case of metadata, algorithms tend to choose for you rather than let you explore in a more free sense. Mm-hmm. So genres can be helpful, but, you know, like anything else, they can also have their limitations as well. Yeah, I think they're more helpful descriptively as opposed to prescriptively. Like if you set out to like make an album Precisely. and you're like, well, what's, what's, what's the parameters of my genre? And I know art, most artists don't think in those terms, but it, I think there is kind of an unconscious thing like, do, is this country or is this jazz? And, and, you know, if people are stepping outside of their genre, you know, they might intentionally say, well, I'm just, I'm doing some kind of fusion thing, or I'm, you know, trying to synthesize these as opposed to just making something and then let the critics decide because, you know, Pitchfork just knows all the answers. So all the um, answers, <laughs> genres are really useful for marketing. I think that's where they really took off. Because when you can describe something more acutely, people are more willing to, you know, spend some money on it if they think they know what they're buying. But, you know, I, to your point, it's not necessarily something that artists are super excited about, you know? Yeah. What is one pop star that is underrated and one pop star that's overrated in your mind? Oof, dangerous question. I feel like I'm going to catch fire from my friends. Let's yeah. see. <laughs> a pop star that is underrated. I have to be honest, I don't actually listen to a lot of pop music. I'll start with one that I think is overrated, and this is going to be a hugely unpopular opinion, Mm -hmm. but I think that Taylor Swift is a little bit overrated. Mm -hmm. And I I think that for a couple of specific reasons, I don't doubt that she is a gifted songwriter and prolific, you know, a huge number of songs, a huge amount of music. I think the way that she handled that whole Scotty or Scooter, is it Scooter? Broad, mm-hmm. you know, deal and he's trying to screw her over. And she said, you know, bye, this is my music. I'm huge supporter of that whole deal and how she handled that. But I also think that her music is, you know, notoriously about all these wrecked relationships and how, and she talks about herself in a way that suggests that she's this crazy woman. And, you know, there's a part of me that understands the wide appeal of that sort of rhetoric, but I also think it can be damaging to, you know, how people view women, you know, she's just another woman that's, you know, having all these crazy relationships. I I don't necessarily think that's a healthy way to build a brand. It has been an extremely, how do you say, yeah, revenue inducing, you know, she's made a ton of money and good for her, get it girl. But I think, you know, I think that there's a lot of 
talk about how amazing she is as a songwriter and some of her skills are really great. I, I just wish the subject matter was different a lot of the time. Hmm. I think underrated pop star, gosh, that's a really good question. I'm not sure that I know of an underrated pop star. I think that might even be like a contradiction in terms on mm, some level. There you go. You know, an underrated pop star. I do find that there are a lot of underrated genres so anything that has like, to your point earlier, like fusion or crossover is hugely interesting and has a lot of opportunity to appeal to a lot of different people in ways that, you know, existing genres haven't. Um, even some, even some, I think as a genre, I want to say electronic music is a little bit underrated. If mm-hmm. I had to pick a genre, perhaps instead of a pop star, just because we've made such huge strides, it's not just, uh, you know, beats in the club, I think, you know, it's not just stuff you hear in in the Mediterranean, but I think there's a lot of like sound design that's happening in electronic music these days. That's much more interesting and actually takes some skill. Yeah. 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 And I think it also depends too on like underrated to who could be the Mm follow-up, you know, like, you know, maybe Burna Boy is like underrated in the United States, but Mm -hmm. in Nigeria, not so much. Right. Uh, Totally. So it just, it depends on where you are, I guess. What's the hardest part of the songwriting process for you? being concise as evidenced by my lengthy answers in this in this episode i am not a gifted person when it comes to being concise and songs require that of you if only for length purposes but usually i know what i want to say and the music part is easy that comes usually before the lyrics i think just distilling the essence of the song down is a little more challenging if you had to start from scratch today to teach yourself piano, how would you do it? And what would you emphasize? Mm. Well, I'm a big believer in learning to read music. You can learn to play any instrument by ear. And there are lots of people who at a young age discover that they have a good ear. You know, they can kind of hear tunes and pick them out on an instrument. They can, you know, hear something and kind of, you know, figure out how to play it without having to look at the music. But I think your world gets a lot bigger when you learn how to read. It's it's the difference between learning how to just speak and learning how to read and write as well, a language, like a written language. And being able to read music is huge. So I think I would still start there, you know, just because I feel like that's a huge foundation that most people, when I talk to them when they're older and they say, oh, I used to take lessons as a kid, but I stopped when I was, you know, 10, 11, 12 sports, whatever. I wish that I could still read music. That's always the first thing they say. Because it, you know, it allow it opens up a library to you that you don't Precisely. have access to. Yeah. Um, and I, I agree with that and would do the same. What's the best vocal exercise for voice acting as opposed to music? Oh, interesting. Voice acting. You did some of that work, correct? I did, yeah. So I I have narrated audiobooks in the past. I would say, I mean, first of all, just be warm, you know, doing it first thing. I I varied between doing it at like seven in the morning and doing it at 7 p.m. And clearly, you know, the evening was better. I think some of the best things you can do is to practice exercises that extend your range. You know, nobody wants to listen to somebody that's monotone in an audiobook recording or any sort of vocal acting and it's it's funny how quickly you'll do that because you are in your own head just sort of reciting. But if you can find a way to mentally remember that people are listening to you in the same way that they listen to music, 
And in the same way that you wouldn't really want to listen to somebody that's doing a monotone, unless you're listening to like Tibetan singing bowls or like Gregorian chant or something kind of wicked like that, you know, people want some range. They want to hear your emotion. And I think any exercises you can do to extend that are pretty key. Love starting my day with Gregorian chants. Um, yep. <laughs> should we trust streaming apps to help us find good music? No. What should we use instead? Our friends, mm. which is challenging, right? Because if we're all sort of using the same streaming apps, it becomes really difficult to break out of those models. But like I said before, it's it's the algorithms deciding for people what they hear. And oftentimes it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If it knows you like, you know, to your point, Burna Boy, it's going to find other things for you that are very similar. But there's an entire kaleidoscope of music out there. And if what algorithms are programmed to do is to basically make recommendations off of things you've already done, you'll continue to get what you've gotten before it in large part. So I think, you know, one thing that I have found is just, I mean, the internet's an amazing and crazy and terrifying place, but you can find a lot of cool things. So I have, you know, a favorite artist that's from France. I have people that I listen to who are from the Middle East. And a lot of those I find just by doing random searches, like who's popular here and who's popular there. And I'm super limited, right? I only find, of course, what's, what the internet tells me, but it can be a springboard to finding other things. Mm. Do you, and you brought this up a second ago, I'm going to bring it up again, because it's something I, I, I think about. Do you think movies have helped classical music or not helped classical music retain its popularity by converting them into soundscapes and soundtracks. Hmm. Now people associate them with just background noise as opposed mm. to the featured art center stage. Right. I think that films and TV and basically multimedia that use music as a part of their soundscape have done really great things for classical music. Sometimes it does get relegated to the background, but in recent years with some of these bigger kind of blockbuster movies that have really compelling scores, like, you know, the Batman score, even some of the Disney Pixar scores are just phenomenal. If you listen to Finding Nemo without the music, you're not under the ocean. You're just sort of watching this weird panoramic group of fish find a fish they lost and it's just not the same, you know? And I think people intrinsically know that or movies would be different without the music that supports them. But to your point, it can become very background. Should university programs like the one you did at UCLA make you sign a waiver which details the average income and job prospect statistics uh, <laughs> before they allow you to take out any loans to fund your program? Ah, oh, geez, this question. You know, I think signing a waiver is a little... It might be a little bit extreme. I think when you study something that is squarely in the arts, you know, in my case, music composition, I think that there is some intrinsic understanding, at least there was on my part, that I'm not going to make the same money as my sister who studied engineering or my friend who became a doctor or my husband who's a lawyer. You know, like that's that's just not in the cards for somebody who studies a strictly artistic discipline. Having said that, I do think that universities have an obligation to their students to prepare them for the business side of whatever subject you're studying. 
if you go into a university and you study philosophy, which, you know, a lot of people study that and then go on to become lawyers or teachers or whatever, you know, consultants, political advisors, et cetera. People need to know how to use their degree to navigate. I think a lot of times we get these degrees and we hang them on our walls and that's considered enough. And it's not enough anymore. It maybe was in our parents' generation or maybe even our grandparents' generation, but it certainly isn't now. And when you see job descriptions that require, you know, receptionists to have a bachelor's degree and five years experience, it's like, well, what, what are you actually asking people to do in college then? What is it that you expect we're learning there? And learning just the discipline alone is not enough. So I think one, and there are programs out there that do a good job of preparing people artistically with a music degree, for example, and then also include required courses like, you know, business development, marketing, et cetera. And I, you know, I took it upon myself to take business law, communications, urban planning, other things outside of my degree area, just because, you know, I observed the world and I knew I was going to need some of that, but it's not required, you know? Yeah. Who was your favorite professor in your music program at UCLA and what made them effective? Mm. Can I pick two? Sure. Okay. So one of them I'm still in contact with, Dr. Mark Carlson. He was he was our music theory and also composition professor. So obviously by virtue of my degree, we spent a lot of time in his classes. And he is one of those people that speaks deliberately which I appreciate because I speak quickly and often use too many words. He speaks deliberately and he requires you to think outside of yourself when you're trying to draw something from yourself, which is challenging because what he's asking you to do is sort of dissociate for a minute, you know, write a piece of music and then step back and be more critical of it than you would if it were someone else's. And he continues to do that for us today. I mean, I, my composition department was very small. Uh, the year that I was accepted, I was one of six people that was accepted for the whole year. And I was the only woman. And so I have this wonderful band of brothers that I went through composition school with, and we still talk today. We've got a group text, you know, we do, we try to do monthly, but we've got, you know, families, kids, jobs. So it turns out to be maybe like quarterly, we get together on Zoom and Dr. Carlson joins us for a lot of those Zoom sessions. We share music that we're currently writing. We critique each other's work. We cheer each other on. We laugh at weird shit that we write that no one can ever play. And, you know, it's wonderful. So Dr. Carlson has been a decades long influence, I think, in a lot of people's lives. And he's just wonderful. And then I did have another professor, Dr. Roger Borland. And he was interesting because he's the one that introduced me to a couple things, electronic music in general. But then also a program called Logic, which had really just come out right before I went to UCLA and has made huge strides. It's a competitor to Pro Tools. It's used in a lot of, you know, professional settings. And without Dr. Borland, I wouldn't be able to create and produce a lot of what I make now. So I'm hugely grateful. Okay. We're going to switch gears and talk about marketing now, which is the other side of your brain, which is more of your day-to-day. Does every business have a story to tell? Let's say I put you in charge of marketing for Postal Annex or some kind of like waste <laughs> management company. Yeah. Do they all have stories to tell? Yeah, but not all the stories are good ones and not all of the stories are compelling. So everybody has a story, right? It's just like people. You meet a bunch of different people in your lifetime and some of them you're like, whoa, this person has done a lot, experienced a lot, internalized and observed a lot, and they have great stories. There are people who live perhaps more modest or simple lives and 
It's not that they don't have a story to tell, it just may not be comparatively as interesting as others. And so in competitive markets like business, the real challenge is not necessarily determining what your story is, but how that appeals to whomever your audience may be. You know, that's the hard part. So let's say I made you the director of marketing for a chain of dry cleaners. How would you mm. approach telling their story? Or would well, you not approach telling their story? Sometimes sometimes you let the story tell itself, right? And that oftentimes people will default to their service model in order to make that work. They figure, you know, if they provide exactly the service that they advertise and they provide it well in a timely fashion and with professionalism, that that should speak for itself. Now, does that mean that, you know, in the case of dry cleaning, that you're going to be head over heels for one dry cleaner versus another? Probably not. You know, if you move, you're going to pick the one that's probably closest to your house. And there's some economic decision that needs to be made there. And I think, you know, perfunctory services like dry cleaning sort of understand that about themselves too. You know, they're not trying to blow you away with a marketing award. Makes sense to me. Let's say I dropped you in some random mid-level city across the United States and you're put in charge of marketing for an arts organization. You don't know any, have any information about what it is, but you're just in charge and you have to market it. What would you recommend to the CEO would be the best way to spend marketing dollars for an arts organization? Community engagement, hands down. So arts are of, for, and by people. And I think where arts organizations often fall a little bit short in marketing is they're so focused on talking about what they offer that sometimes they fail to become realistic about what that actually means to the people who are experiencing their art. So, you know, if you are in a, if you drop me in some, like you said, some middle America town and I don't know anything about the location and I probably don't know a lot of people, you know, the first step is to reach out to the people that the art is for and find out, you know, A, do you know about this? You know, B, how does it make you feel? Because ultimately, like Maya Angelou said, it's about how you make people feel, right? That's what they remember. That's what they take with them. And that's what causes them to spread the word, you know, the whole point of marketing. And, you know, really understanding how that arts organization fits into the fold of the community in which they are present. Mm. So this is kind of related, but obviously it's not an arts organization. So if I made you the marketing czar of Fresno, the city in oh, the man. region. A czar? I've always wanted to be a czar. Uh, I think it's a great thing. Uh, C-Z-A-R, not yes. T-S-A-R. And I'd given you a somewhat unlimited budget. How would you market Fresno? Oof. How would I market Fresno? I had to give you a challenging question, right? You know, I appreciate it. I feel like Fresno is interesting because it's in California, but it's not really, doesn't really feel like California when you're here. You know, we have California weather, it's pretty mild all the time, but, you know, we are not the Bay Area, we're not LA, you know, we're not even really the mountains and we're not really the coast, you know, we're smack dab in the middle. And so for that reason, we are pretty unique. I do think that Fresno is one of those places where you can come as you are. And there aren't a lot of places like that in the world. A lot of places expect you to come and be exactly who they are in that location. You go to LA, glamour. You go to the Bay Area, Silicon Valley. You go to the mountains, you know, 
lumberjack, whatever, you know, it's just very, it's very specific. It's very prescribed. And I think in Fresno, one thing that I do appreciate about the folks here, and you know, I'm not originally from here and neither is my husband. So we both have an interesting outsider perspective, even though we both lived here a long time now, I appreciate that people can come and bring themselves. You know, I don't feel like I have to be a different person to exist in Fresno. You know, my husband and I are different kinds of people and we love each other and we have a home here and a family here and we feel comfortable, you know, raising kids here. I think that that's not always the case, you know? And if I were to market Fresno with an unlimited budget, you know, it would be to tell people come as you are now, which is a dangerous thing, right? Because there are lots of different types of people in the world, particularly in the United States, you know, we're recording this on the day after this horrible massacre in Lewiston, Maine. My husband's from Maine. You know, we have friends that live very close to where that all took place. That's not the sort of thing anybody would ever wish on anyone else. And unfortunately, when you say come as you are, sometimes that's maybe perhaps what you get. And, you know, Fresno's not perfect. We've got some, you know, shadows of Proud Boys. We've got shadows of other things that live here. And while I certainly don't think that should come as they are, that's part of the landscape, right? But we can also encourage people who are thoughtful and, you know, want to bring great ideas and have good energy and really push our area forward in a way that's helpful and healthy for our community. You know, that's that's the come as you are we're looking for. But there again, so I think I'm contradicting myself, right? So I'm saying come as you are, but I'm also saying here are the parameters. Well, you're saying so, come as you are, but you're also being a person with preferences, which I think is okay, right. you know, because we all have preferences and we are not all neutral. Now, mm -hmm. speaking of preferences, I'm going to make you take a side in this next section I call underrated versus overrated. I'm going to throw a <laughs> bunch of stuff at you. You tell me okay. when you think they're under overrated and then quickly why. First one, me and Ed's pizza. Overrated. Okay. Why? There are just a lot of them. The pizza all tastes the same. Nothing okay. super special. Next one, the hills and stairs at UCLA. Underrated. Those things will give you legs of steel. Amazing. So you saw them as an opportunity for exercise, not a hindrance to get to class? Listen, I can't, I can't undo the hills and stairs, so you might as well embrace them. Yes, my mm -hmm. legs were amazing in college. <laughs> <laughs> Next one, harpsichords. Underrated. Okay. They're pretty, nothing sounds like a harpsichord. Only harpsichord sounds like a, a harpsichord. Do you think they should make a comeback? Should people that play piano have a harpsichord in their houses? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I'm really partial to the piano. So I would probably just stick with my piano. Okay. Next one, the MySpace music player. Oh my God. Underrated. Are you kidding? Yeah, I'm not tell, sure that I, has I ever also been think replaced. it's underrated, but I want you to you to explain your reasoning for why it's underrated, and I'll explain mine as well. Yeah. Okay. So it went away, and unlike a lot of things, there wasn't something that took its place again, right? So, like, if you go on Instagram and you add a song to your to your post, that's very different than just the music player where you can share music. You know, it's very. I think SoundCloud as a separate yeah. platform is probably the closest thing we have to the MySpace music player, but it's not. The social aspect of that is lacking. That's not integrated. So, totally. Yeah. 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 I think it's underrated too, because in high school I was in, you know, like bands in high school, you know, you're in bands mm -hmm. and, and you could post your music and we, there was like, there was more of a local, I feel like it, it encouraged more local music scenes that, you know, where you'd go see a band at a bar or a pizza place or some kind of venue and then you could look them up on MySpace and then connect with the musicians. And totally. it, it was a it was a universe that I wish I wish didn't go away. 
next, next one, health and wellness programs in workplaces, particularly real estate workplaces. Overrated. So yoga <laughs> in the workplace? I mean, I listen, I, I know where this is coming from. <laughs> so I taught yoga classes when I worked at Realty Concepts and they were nice. I liked teaching them. The people that took them liked them. But I think just as a general, in general, and this is nothing against that organization, but in general, I think wellness in the workplace is a little bit of a conundrum. If the workplace is the sort of place that requires you to have all that, perhaps perhaps what needs to be revisited is the nature of the workplace itself Mm -hmm. and creating a space where people feel safe and comfortable instead of having to like do all that. Now, you know, when I worked for Google, there was a lot of that sort of thing there. But that was partly because Google wants you to never leave the campus. You know, they want mm. you to wake up there, sleep there. They've got dry cleaning on campus, bars, every sort of restaurant, you know, all sorts of things. And so I think if you have a reason behind those things, that should be what's explored. But yeah, I think they're pretty overrated. Okay. What's your favorite Hans Zimmer soundtrack? Oh, man. I mean, the cop-out answer, but also not a cop-out answer is Pirates of the Caribbean mm. and probably like the, the original because the mm. spinoffs end up getting a little crazy, but the first score was pretty, pretty epic. What'd you like about it? So Hans Zimmer is interesting in how he composes. He uses a mixture of live orchestra and a number of other sort of computer generated sounds, for example. And what that does is it yields this depth that you can't necessarily get from just an acoustic orchestra. Hans Zimmer also wrote the score to The Lion King, you know, back in our youth. And he does interesting things like he reached, he, I think he worked with a West African singer. To, you know, I don't know what the words are. I don't want to, you know, yeah. mess them up. But that, <laughs> that part that everybody yeah. knows you know, he went straight to the source. It's a it's a movie about a Saharan, you know, Lion King world. And he went to West Africa and found somebody that was legitimately of that world and used that. So I like him because he's unconventional in how he builds his scores. Okay. Next one. Upright pianos. Underrated. Why? Grand pianos are beautiful and big. And oftentimes people gravitate toward those as like, oh, you must really play piano if you can, if you play a grand piano. But most people learn on really humble, upright pianos. And without upright pianos, I think access to music would be really hard to come by. Emo rap. I'm not even sure I know what that is. (laughs) What is emo rap? Uh, Like My Chemical Romance meets like Eminem. Well, it's it is it is this movement in hip hop that my friends could probably articulate better than I can. Okay, there's a lot more vocal in terms of you know there's a lot more singing. Auto tune is a big part of it, and then there's a lot more kind of reflective content in the music. Hmm. So, so there we go. It sounds inspiring. I'm going to stay neutral until I hear some and then okay. maybe ask All me right. next time. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> sounds good. The jazz pianist, Bill Evans. Oh, underrated. Is I, he really underrated or is he properly I rated? I think he's properly rated. I think that people don't typically underrate Bill Evans. Yeah. Right. So like, I think he's properly appreciated for the jazz genius that he is. Do you have a favorite Bill Evans song? I could tell you mine. It's an artist. Do you have a favorite? Mm. I, I can hear it in my head, but I don't know the name of it. So that's the problem with Spotify too. I listen to things in random playlists and then forget the mm. names of songs, but he is quite, quite impressive. Okay. Just a couple more. Walt Disney Concert Hall. 
I think he, I think that's another properly rated one. I mean, obviously the, I was there most recently last summer. So June of 2022 for a conference. And I got to hear the youth orchestra and also the LA Phil perform. And the space obviously is acoustically quite, quite perfect. The architecture is Frank Gehry, you know, and name aside, it's just stunning. You know, there's not really another space like that. And the inside is just beautiful. I want to say that there are other countries who also have really amazing concert halls. I think the Walt Disney Concert Hall is certainly unique for the U.S. You know, there isn't really another space like that in the U.S. Okay, next one is a marketing one. Simon Sinek's concept of know your why. (laughs) Well, I think the concept of knowing your why is properly rated. I think Simon Sinek is overrated at this point. Why is he Uh, overrated? Why? He is emblematic of this sort of last decade of business consultant personalities. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think when people fangirl too much over someone like that, you know, he's just repeats a lot of the same things in different ways. And while the the reason I separate the person from the concept is that the concept itself is not necessarily new. Simon Sinek was just a really great personality to deliver that message in a way that was palatable to a lot of CEOs and in a book that was just flashy enough and just, you know, bad boy enough to feel like, oh, we've got this mystical concept that we're going to implement. People have been talking about their why, which is their purpose for decades. It's the crux of the human experience. Why are we here? It's not a new question, but I think the way that he framed it and him as a person being able to like have his English accent and, you know, wear his watch and do these, I mean, it's a, it's a whole character at this point. Would you rather listen to one of Mozart's operas or any of the amazing Puccini or Italian operas? I think Italian operas. Why? The lyricism is just, I mean, so I studied a little bit of Italian in school. In music school, you have to pick a language because so many of the operas and other pieces are in, you know, other Roman or Romance languages. And Italian operas just, they roll beautifully. You know, the language itself, I think, lends itself really well to opera. Hmm. Last one, living in North Fresno. <laughs> Probably overrated in some ways. I think a big deal is made out of made out of North Fresno, but there are so many really wonderful parts of Fresno that saying that North Fresno is, you know, the place to be is not exactly fair or accurate given what you can find in other parts of the city as well. All right, we're going to jump into a couple Fresno questions before we wrap up with books. Can you discuss the cultural value and importance of the Fresno Philharmonic to the community and also share why we're so lucky to have Stephen Wilson and Ray involved with the organization? Yeah, gladly. So the Fresno Philharmonic obviously is a classical music organization. You know, we put on our Masterworks program, our Masterworks series of about five concerts each season you know, in a season that spans about nine months, think of a school year, you know, basically September through May or June. And we also have a pop series that offers other things like coming up in December, we've got our home for the holidays, which is really a fun, a fun way to celebrate the holidays with family. But, you know, I think what, what's not necessarily known immediately about the Fresno Philharmonic and other modern orchestras like us is how much energy, money, and resources we put toward living composers. And classical as a genre can mean a lot of things because of that now. 
you know, we co-commission projects with a number of very diverse composers. So, you know, Juan Pablo Contreras, who's a Latin Grammy Award winner, you know, Valerie Coleman and Jesse Montgomery, who are both African-American women who are writing very new and compelling works. You know, we have uh, a co-commission coming up being being written by two Japanese sisters here, and one of whom I went to school with, Hitomi Oba and her sister Erica Oba. They're being coached by Gabriella Lina Frank, who's this amazing, um, you know, Latina composer who has this extensive background where she also mentors other composers. And so there's this interesting network that we are extremely active in building across the United States, not just here in Fresno, in which we are supporting diverse composers, we're supporting new works of music. And a lot of that is important because all of those new composers are writing pieces that are reflective of our current human experience. You know, one thing that's really hard about classical music for people typically is that it seems very out of reach, right? And part of that is by design. Classical music back in the day used to be the sort of thing that wealthy benefactors would pay an artist to create, and it would be played for the aristocracy. And if you were, you know, a lay person like me, you know, you wouldn't maybe hear any of that, or you'd hear it in passing, but it was out of reach. And I think that sort of inherent elitism in the way that the classical music framework was structured many centuries ago is still often what people think about when they think of classical music, rather than saying, we have all these new composers, they are my peers. Some of these folks are, you know, I think Juan Pablo Contreras, for example, is one year older than me, right? So he's what, 37, 38 years old. And that's wonderful. That's somebody who is my peer. He's writing music that speaks to him and is being created in the same time period in which I live. That's, that's monumental. But, you know, that's the sort of thing that we are really heavily focused on. And the reason that Stephen and Ray, you know, Stephen Wilson's our CEO, Ray Hatoda, of course, is our amazing music director. The reason that they are so critical to our success is that they are instrumental in pioneering a lot of those relationships and making a lot of that happen. Those are not things that have to take place in a current orchestral industry. You know, we are making the choice to seek out new living composers. We're making the choice to seek out composers in that realm who are diverse, you know, women, people of color, basically, you know, expanding the BIPOC experience. And we are making the choice to make all of this accessible to the people of Fresno through things like, you know, our education programs, making sure things are priced in a way that's accessible to everyone, you know, just, just lots of little details. And Stephen and Ray are really instrumental in making all of that happen. Okay. I'm going to ask you kind of a big abstract question and I hope it makes sense, but I'm I'm going to try my best to articulate it because it's kind of pulling on a few currents in my brain. So in just talking with people, it seems that what makes art in Fresno so, so spectacular is also its greatest challenge. So there's this kind of inherent like dialectic or irony here. And I was talking to Joseph Rios, who is the poet laureate of Fresno right now about this subject. And I asked him, you know, what makes what what is distinct about Fresno poetry? And one of the things he talked about, and these are not his words, but my summary of his words was just the harshness and then the anger and then the rage. And he found that as a current that goes through a lot of the great poetry that comes out of Fresno. And I think that's true. Like some of the hardships that people endure uh, creates great poetry. When we think of the book of Job, you know, we think of suffering and we think of, you know, 
how we find beauty and sustain ourselves with art through through the challenges that we experience in life. But that also makes it difficult for artists to be sustained in places that are challenging. And so it seems like Fresno creates stuff that it has difficulty sustaining. Would you say that's an accurate picture? Thinking in, in your work with the Fresno Arts Council about what makes a place good for art, do you see that as the underlining challenge and opportunity? Or do you think there's something else that really helps us to understand what makes Fresno a great art city? Well, I think that there is a fundamental question in Fresno about what constitutes art in the first place. And the reason I think that and where I have observed that is actually through my work as past president of the Fresno Arts Council. You know, there were lots of conversations in the course of my of my work there that suggested to me that there are certain types of art that are considered, widely considered art. And there are certain types of art that are not considered art by those who think that they are the ones who decide what art is, for example. And I think that when you have a fundamental challenge of not being able to identify what the art is or not agree on what that is, then there's also this challenge of assigning value to people, right? So if you are, I think I'm doing a bad job of explaining this. No, I think you're, I think you're doing a great job. You're trying to catch a balloon. So, I mean, I think it makes sense, you know, it's, it's popping around <laughs> the room. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it makes sense to me. Yeah. I, you know, what I would, what I hope for Fresno, maybe this is a better way of describing this. What I hope for Fresno is that if we produce art that is maybe not as smooth to swallow, right. As maybe other areas, like you go to, the De Young Museum in San Francisco, and you expect to see a certain kind of thing. And when you see it, you are satisfied and you leave feeling like you've seen art or experienced art. But I think when art looks and feels different, so if it feels harsh coming from Fresno because people have a bit more friction perhaps in their lives and their experiences and their observations, I think what Fresno can do for itself is recognize that that is a byproduct of where we, where we live. That's a byproduct of the social fabric that we've created here and understand that to, to dismiss that art or to not support it is in and of itself not supporting the place in which you live. And there are a lot of people who are really big on Fresno, right? Like big Fresno hype people and big Fresno supporters. And I'd love to think that those folks also understand that loving a place means accepting all of what that place is. And if part of that place creates this harsh art, creates these harsh poetry you know, experiences, and simultaneously music, right? There are some really great songs that are fucking dark. They're dark. And that's because those are the experiences that those people have had. You have to accept all of it if you're going to accept part of it. And that's that's just a hard thing to learn, I think, in life. Hmm. Well, let's close in the same place. What are two or three books you'd recommend to listeners? Ooh. Harkening back to my kind of corporate days, there is a really great book called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. It's one of those reads where you come away feeling like you can 
take on the world and largely you can, but I think just a lot of really great suggestions in terms of understanding how people build habits and break them. There's a really great book that I just read that's fictional called The Midnight Library by Matt Haig. Mm-hmm. Apparently Matt Haig also has like a dozen other books. So I'm I'm going to make my way to Barnes and Noble slash Amazon to collect them. It's dark, it's existential in nature, but the ending is, I mean, the lessons you learn along the way are very interesting and how they're presented are extremely unique. And then the last one is called A House for Mr. Biswas by an Indian author, East Indian author named V.S. Nepal. He's actually lived a long part of his life in my parents' home country of Trinidad. And so a lot of the colloquialisms in that book are very familiar to me, but it's a really, he's just a really unique writer. So those are the three. Wonderful recommendations. I just watched my wife pour through the Midnight Library and was sad when she had to set it down and finally close it and was, you know, asking herself when she could start it again. Agreed. Um, So if people want to find out more about you and more about the Fresno Philharmonic, where should they go? And what's the next concert coming up? Oh, so the Fresno Philharmonic is presenting the Riff of Life, Beethoven 7th. And that program includes a brand new piece called Dance by a modern female composer named Anna Klein. And that's being performed November 18th and 19th at the Chagoyan Concert Hall up in Northeast Fresno. And you can go to fresnofall.org for tickets, info, me, goellengo.com, I suppose is a good place to start. I have, you know, music there, other stuff, marketing help, that sort of thing. But really just find me around town and we can have coffee. Thank you so much, Ellen, for talking with me. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's Best. We'll see you next time.